Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q&Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Monday the 18th of January 2021. News. Breakthrough discovery reveals way of reversing motor neuron disease damage. This article's by Helen McArdle. Scientists are a step closer to being able to reverse the damage caused by motor neuron disease following a breakthrough discovery by researchers in Edinburgh. The team has shown for the first time that the axon, a nerve fibre, sometimes up to a metre long, which connects and sends electrical impulses from the nerve cells to the muscle, is shorter in cells affected by MND than in healthy cells. They also discovered that the movement of the mitochondria, which travel up and down the axons, is impaired. However, the researchers found that the damage to nerve cells or motor neurons caused by MND can be repaired by boosting the energy levels in these mitochondria, the tiny batteries which power chemical reactions in all human cells. Once this was done, the axon reverted to normal length. The effect was achieved in the laboratory using motor neurons grown from stem cells collected from people with a genetic mutation known to cause both MND and a form of dementia. These laboratory-grown motor neurons were then exposed to a virus which supercharged a key molecule vital to the healthy functioning of mitochondria. When we did that, we found that all of the issues significantly reversed back to normal, said Dr. Arpan Mehta, who led the research for his PhD. The scientists also examined spinal cord tissue donated by people who had died with MND. This revealed the same problems with the axon and the mitochondria, which the scientists had detected in the motor neurons grown from stem cells. The findings have now been published in the journal Acta Neuropathologica. The team, based at the Ewan MacDonald Centre for MND Research at Edinburgh University, believe they will be able to produce the same results in patients, not with a virus, but by repurposing an existing drug instead. One promising candidate could be a diabetes medication, which is already licensed and known to increase mitochondrial activity, but investigators will be screening hundreds of thousands of potential compounds before recommending one for human clinical trials. Dr Meta, a trainee neurologist, was attracted from Oxford to Edinburgh by the Rowling Scholar Regenerative Neurology PhD programme, the flagship scheme run by the Anne Rowling Clinic. The clinic was founded in 2010 with a £10 million donation from Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling in memory of her mother who died of complications from multiple sclerosis. He said the results are a really exciting development for MND patients. 
we believe that this technique of rescuing the axon through boosting energy will not only slow and stop but could reverse the degeneration, so it could potentially be very powerful. MND, also known as amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, is a progressive and incurable condition that causes muscles to waste away. It occurs when the motor neurons, which send messages from the brain and spinal cord to the body's muscles, stop working properly. More than 1,500 people are diagnosed with MND in the UK each year, and half of patients die within two years of diagnosis. Dr Mehta, who carried out the study alongside Dr Bhuvanesh Selvaraj and Professor Siddharthan Chandra, said Scotland was uniquely well-placed to progress their findings into human clinical trials quickly as a result of the pioneering MND SMART project launched last year. The initiative, led by Edinburgh University and the Ewan MacDonald Centre, is an adaptive clinical trial which brings together hundreds of patients across the UK with MND and enables multiple possible treatments to be tested at once. It means that as soon as the investigators identify a drug likely to produce the mitochondrial boost they are looking for, it can be fast-tracked straight into large-scale clinical trials, a process which might normally take 10 to 15 years. If you were to hand a drug that's already safe because it's used in other diseases to MND Smart, you could basically get a result within a couple of years, said Dr Mehta. Because the stark reality is, despite all the progress in modern medicine, the only drug that is licensed for this condition is Riluzole, which was licensed in the mid-1990s and prolongs life by two to three months in a condition with average survival of two to three years. Dr Mehta added that he was delighted that his PhD project could be paving the way to a new way to treat the disease. He said, we're very happy. It's a combination of hard work and luck and also inspiration from the environment that we're in. In Siddharthan's laboratory, we often have patients coming to the lab visiting us, so that drives everyone to behave themselves and work hard. The study we funded by the Medical Research Council Motor Neuron Disease Association, Ewan MacDonald Centre for MND Research, My Name's Doddy Foundation, UK Dementia Research Institute and the Anne Rowling Regenerative Neurology Clinic. This article is by Helen McArdle. The Herald, Tuesday the 19th of January 2021. News. Cumnock is to become an international centre of excellence for classical music composers. This article is by Martin Williams. It is the small East Ayrshire town of 13,000 people with a strong socialist heritage due to its history as a mining centre. The statue of the father of the Labour Party, James Keir Hardy, who lived in the town for a large part of his life, sits outside the town hall. Now, Sir James Macmillan, the Ayrshire-born, internationally renowned conductor, who is one of the world's most successful composers, is planning to turn it into a centre of excellence in the learning and teaching of classical music composition. Sir James, who read music at the University of Edinburgh and during an acclaimed career went on to be knighted in the 2015 Queen's Birthday Honours, is behind the major initiative which is aimed at putting Scotland's centre stage in the world of classical music composition. 
The ambition is for Cumnock, where he grew up, to become a centre of excellence in the learning and teaching of composition, in a move not limited to Scotland, but for fledging composers and their teachers from across the world. The composer is behind a bid for best practice over composing classical music through a digital network and will include a series of online seminars and films. It is anticipated that over the next 10 years, the Centre of Excellence will support composers at the beginning of their careers, helping those in teaching and also encourage those young composers still at school. The first year of the new partnership, involving the Cumnock Trist Festival, of which Sir James is founder and artistic director, and leading global music education provider Trinity College London, will involve delivering a school-based composition project, Build It Loud, for advanced higher music students at Cumnock's Robert Burns Academy. A new book has also been commissioned for music teachers and young composers from James Macmillan and Jennifer Martin to illustrate the compositional process and to support those teaching and learning composition in the upper years of secondary school. Under the school's project, they are mentoring 15 advanced higher students as they write a new piece of music for the Scottish Chamber Orchestra's Brass Quintet. Sir James has already announced plans to launch an extra festival in the East Ayrshire town this summer, as well as the annual event in October, which has attracted leading singers, musicians, orchestras and choirs to Cumnock. Scottish Chamber Orchestra and Evelyn Glennie are both expected to perform in the new event in June. He said, It has long been an ambition of mine to take all the experience and learnings we have built over many years of teaching composition in the schools around Cumnock and East Ayrshire and make those available to teachers and students further afield. Teachers are under an incredible amount of pressure and for many, composition is a challenging topic to tackle. We've seen fantastic results at both primary and secondary school levels through our work here and feel we can really help support and empower those tasked with teaching composition in our schools across the UK. The resources we create will not just be focused on teachers, but also support students studying composition at a higher education level or even self-taught. As part of our work to date, we have mentored many emerging composers and supported some incredible talent nurtured here in Cumnock, such as Jay Caperold and Electra Perevolaris, through commissions for our festival, the Cumnock Trist. I really believe that here we have the skills and resources to create an internationally recognised centre of excellence which will benefit the potential composers in the area but also those around the world. All of the Build It Loud completed works will be performed and recorded in a live event within the Robert Burns Academy in 2021 when restrictions allow. The works by the young composers will then be collated in a growing archive of music written by pupils in East Ayrshire and in due course it is hoped made available to teachers and students through the Trinity College London website. This will include much of the teaching processes used in the Trist composition projects for schools and will be launched at the Cumnock Trist Festival in October next year. Sir James Macmillan added, At a time when those who make music face so many challenges, we are very glad to be able to continue our plans to create a centre of excellence in the teaching and learning of composition. 
working with Trinity College London, we can make the resources we will develop available to a wide network of music and education establishments around the world to support the creation of new music everywhere. Stuart Pearce, Trinity's Director of UK and Ireland Markets, said, Our relationship with Sir James and the Cumnock Trust is very important to us and we are delighted to be able to support this invaluable and groundbreaking work. The publication of this book is a wonderful way to underpin the Centre of Excellence initiative and we look forward to a long and valuable collaboration, making a real difference to the lives of young musicians everywhere. This article is by Martin Williams. The Herald, Wednesday the 20th of January 2021. News. Israel's vaccination policy, real-world evidence that delaying vaccine booster, right decision. This article is by Caroline Wilson. Data showing Israel's widespread vaccination policy has dramatically reduced hospital admissions is real-world evidence that the UK governments were right to delay second doses of the Pfizer vaccine, a clinical expert has said. The British Medical Association, which represents doctors, is continuing to lobby for frontline workers to be offered the booster earlier than 12 weeks because while the short-term efficacy of the first dose for preventing serious illness is 90%, it is unclear when this starts to wane. Dr Thomas Williams, a clinical lecturer at Edinburgh University, said that he empathised with his clinical colleagues, but said the government had to be pragmatic in the face of surging cases and new variants of COVID-19. He said, at the end of the day, if it's a choice between slightly less protection for you or one of your patients dying, then surely you would have to go for the protection of patients. The latest figures show that 2.43 million people in Israel have now received at least one shot of the two-dose vaccines, around 27% of the country, and more than anywhere else in the world, although the government has faced criticism from human rights groups for failing to commit to protecting Palestines. Figures show 4,500 people were diagnosed with COVID after having one dose of the vaccine. Of those, 244 were hospitalised in the first week, 124 in the second week, and seven more than 15 days from when they received the vaccine, which Dr Thomas said suggests higher efficacy from two weeks. Israel's coronavirus czar has warned that a single dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine may be providing less protection than originally hoped. Those who had received their second dose of the Pfizer vaccine had a 6-12 to fold increase in antibodies, according to data released by Sheba Medical Centre in Tel Hashomer on Monday. The country has struck a deal with Pfizer promising to share medical data in exchange for the continued flow of its hard-to-get vaccine. However, Dr Williams, who is also a paediatrician, said the latest JCVI data, which suggests the Pfizer vaccine is most effective between day 15 and 21, was reassuring and said the priority for scientists will be to study reinfection rates after this time. One GP has suggested that the longer delay in administering the booster could be like administering a first jag by 12 weeks and said he would be acting as if he had not been vaccinated. I think that's wise in any situation. No vaccine is going to be 100% effective, said Dr Williams. 
until we have got really low rates of the virus, we should not be changing our behaviour and that's the message we have been given consistently. In principle, a single dose could be less effective and wane over time, but we don't have any data for this yet. Israel is probably the best real-world evidence we have and suggests that it seems to work pretty well from day 15. There are two risks. The first is that immunity wanes and isn't as much as the JCV study says, which is 89% after the first dose. That's a theoretical possibility, but we haven't seen evidence of that yet. The second is the risk of mutations occurring in the virus and you have got incomplete immunity. That's a theoretical risk. I know that it's a priority for those who are sequencing the virus to look at immunised people and reinfections, but we won't know that for a little while yet. The government had to balance out giving out a second dose to follow the trial for 96% efficacy after your second dose and fully protecting everyone as much as they could do with protecting people in care homes. Other countries have decided to vaccinate younger people, but I think we have too many cases to do that in the UK. None of the trials of the three vaccines approved for use in the UK have demonstrated that they prevent infection altogether or reduces the spread of the virus in a population. This leaves open the chance that those who are vaccinated could remain susceptible to asymptomatic infection and could transmit that infection to others who remain vulnerable. Asked if the policy of delaying the second dose is likely to change, Dr Williams said, I think so. At the moment, we don't have enough vaccines, and that's because they're difficult to make. This article is by Caroline Wilson. The Herald, Wednesday the 20th of January 2021. News. New plan to introduce links to Scotland after 1,000 years will help save forests. This article is by Martin Williams. It is the forgotten predator that disappeared from Scotland due to fur hunting and habitat loss over 1,000 years ago. Since then, the British countryside has been devoid of large carnivores and any memory of living alongside anything larger than a fox or badger has been lost with the brown bear and the wolf now also absent from the landscape. Now, new plans have been revealed to reintroduce one predator to Scotland, the Eurasian lynx, which is considered the most suitable candidate for carnivore restoration in Britain. A group of three charities believe that their introduction as a natural predator of deer will have an indirect benefit to maintaining Scotland's woodlands. As a shy and solitary woodland hunter, lynx were rarely glimpsed and attacks on humans are virtually unknown. Research suggests the Highlands has sufficient habitat and more than enough roe deer, the cat's preferred prey, to support around 400 wild lynx. But they are not going to go forward with any plan until it concludes what they see as Scotland's first extensive and impartial study to assess people's views about their possible reintroduction to the Scottish Highlands. The charity partnership of Scotland, The Big Picture, Trees for Life and Vincent Wildlife Trust, which is to carry out the year-long consultation, say there are extensive areas of Scotland that could support links. But they say... Returning the shy and elusive animal is less about science and more about people's willingness to live alongside a species that's become forgotten on these shores.
The groups say the loss of links has had an impact on Scotland's biodiversity. Scotland's excessively high numbers of woodland deer, which currently lack natural predators, can have a major impact on forestry and on wildlife habitats through heavy browsing. In taking the Caledonian forest as an example, they say only a tiny proportion of the original forest remains spread across scattered fragments. Most are now mainly made up of lone granny pines, which can be over 200 years old. They say many of these ancient trees are dying as they stand, with no young trees to succeed them. But where seeds manage to germinate, Scotland's excessive numbers of deer destroy the saplings. A major benefit of a healthy lynx population would be to reduce the impacts and costs of browsing by deer. The return of such an apex predator would likely have cascade effect, allowing native forests to regenerate with associated benefits for woodland wildlife, said Richard Bunting, a spokesman for the groups. Impact on red deer is unlikely to be significant because lynx are shy ambush hunters, which avoid open areas. Instead, lynx prefer smaller woodland deer, such as roe and sika. By preying on roe deer, lynx could play a vital role in maintaining healthy woodlands. The charities say that lynx are now expanding in range and number across mainland Europe as hunting laws are enforced and public attitudes to large predators soften. They say successful lynx reintroductions since the 1970s have brought ecological and environmental benefits to countries more densely populated than Scotland and in areas used for farming, hunting, forestry and tourism. Across Europe, there was once just 700 individual cats, but now there are now estimated to be 10,000 of them, and successful reintroductions have been organised in countries including Germany, France and Switzerland. The charities say that based on evidence from other countries, a lynx reintroduction would have no significant impact on threatened species such as wildcats and capercaillie. Lynx are known to routinely play on foxes, which do prey on capercaillie, and can compete with wildcats for food, so there are potential benefits for capercaillie and wildcats, said Mr Bunting. But the charities involved recognise that the lynx's return could bring challenges too, so in our review, this consultation and a respectful dialogue with those who live and work in the countryside is essential before any reintroduction could ever happen. To our knowledge, there have been no formal rigorous study of public attitudes towards link reintroduction like this before for the areas we are looking at, which is the Highlands and Argyll. It is not the first time the idea has been mooted. The Lynx UK Trust was denied a licence to release Lynx in Kelder Forest, Northumberland in 2018. Steve Micklewright, Chief Executive of Trees for Life, said Scotland has more woodland deer than any other European country and their relentless browsing often prevents the expansion and healthy regeneration of our natural woodlands. By preying on roe deer, lynx would restore ecological processes that have been missing for centuries and provide a free and efficient deer management service. Jenny McPherson, Science and Research Programme Manager with the Vincent Wildlife Trust, which will lead the study, said reintroducing links would inevitably bring challenges. Links to Scotland will actively include stakeholders representing the full range of perspectives in order to produce meaningful conclusions about the level of support or tolerance for links 
and therefore the likely success of any future reintroduction. This article is by Martin Williams. The Herald, Monday the 18th of January 2021. News. Rare Scottish wildcat kitten saved from death's door after rescuer mistakes it for domestic cat. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. A man who rescued a tiny kitten he found freezing and struggling in the snow was surprised to hear that he had actually contributed to the preservation of an endangered species on Wednesday. Award-winning chef Pete McNabb was out for a socially distant stroll with his 11-week-year-old son and good friend when they came across the poorly kitten in Huntley's Cave, north of Granton in Moray. Reaching out on social media in a bid to reunite the creature, assumed to be a domestic cat with its owner, Mr McNabb described it as struggling to move and Baltic with the snow. After carrying the kitten three miles back to the nearest vets, who confirmed the kitten was on death's door and suffering from hypothermia, Mr McNabb and his friend learned they had saved the life of an endangered species. Also dubbed Highland Tigers, Wild cats look similar to large domestic cats, but are larger and stockier with a bushy tail. McNabb, 32, told the Herald, It was an amazing experience. My friend had hoped that if it was unclaimed, he could have had the cat returned after a mild bonding session with the cat carrying it for such a length. He was secretly disappointed to hear it was in fact a wild cat and was unable to be returned. Instead, the female kitten, dubbed Huntley, after the name of the spot where she was rescued, has been passed to the proper authorities for further treatment. Mr McNabb added, The vet said it was in a very poorly state. It was sodden through, couldn't stand up, and in a severe state of distress, surrounded by a circle of intimidating, nosy sheep when we found it. But now the cat has been passed to the local Strathpey Cat Protection Service, who planned to rehabilitate and release the cat back into the wild. A report published in 2019 warned wild cats in Scotland are at the brink of extinction. The study, commissioned by the Scottish Wild Cat Conservation Action Plan, SWCAP, steering group, said there was no longer a viable wild cat population in Scotland. However, partnership project Saving Wild Cats, led by Royal Zoological Society of Scotland and based at the charity's second site, Highland Wildlife Park, is doing what it can to boost the wildcat population. The conservation, breeding and release of wildcats is being carried out by the Saving Wildcats Partnership, led by RZSS, in collaboration with Nature Scott, Forestry and Land Scotland, the Cairngorms National Park Authority, Norden's Ark and Junta de Andalusia. Mr McNabb, who recently took on the role of General Manager at the Garth Hotel, said he hopes the tale will inspire others to head out into the great outdoors, knowing firsthand that you may well find something unexpected. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. The Herald, Monday the 18th of January 2021. News. Scottish gas workers in new wave of fire and rehire strikes from Wednesday in biggest dispute for 40 years. This article is by Martin Williams. Gas workers in Scotland are to begin a fresh seven-day wave of strikes from Wednesday as part of the biggest dispute seen in the sector for 40 years. 
Over 1,000 Scottish gas workers in Scotland are expected to take part in the action in a dispute over a fire and rehire cuts to pay and terms and conditions. Members of the GMB union say they will withdraw their labour on Wednesday the 20th, Friday the 22nd, Monday the 25th, Friday the 29th, Saturday the 30th, Sunday the 31st of January and Monday February the 1st. They believe that the disruption has meant that those waiting for service number more than 100,000 across the UK. This is denied by Centrica. Centrica, which owns British oblique Scottish gas, told the Herald before the first wave of stoppages that they have done everything they could to avoid industrial action. They have had contingency plans in place to allow them to continue to serve customers, with the majority being carried out by their own engineers and also with the help of existing contractors. The GMB union said that thousands of gas and electrical engineers were told in July that if they did not agree new terms and conditions, which their union the GMB characterised as containing draconian cuts to their terms and conditions, they would be fired, then rehired. The strike follows a 9-1 to vote in favour of industrial action by members of the GMB union, which has accused British Gas, which trades as Scottish Gas north of the border, and parent firm Centrica of planning to cut pay terms and conditions. Justin Bowden, GMB National Secretary, said the strike is stepping up a gear this week with further days of action, with the company apparently disregarding its customers and its obligations. In the face of growing employee and customer discontent, and after the first round of the biggest and most successful gas strikes in decades, the management of profitable British gas continue to bury their heads in the sand. British gas workers have already rejected pay cuts on pain of fire and rehire, yet in the face of condemnation across the political spectrum, Chris O'Shea refuses to listen to his workforce, despite Centrica being a company of underlying profitability. Instead of lashing out at the engineers who overwhelmingly rejected his plan and voted to take strike action, Mr O'Shea should withdraw fire and hire and enter constructive discussions with GMB to avert further disruption. Certentrica, Britain's biggest energy supplier, told the Herald we are operating in an incredibly competitive market and British Gas has lost too many jobs and too many customers over recent years. We can't continue like this. We need to take action to modernise and refocus the company in line with what our customers need now, not what they needed 20 years ago. Our pay for engineers will remain the highest in the sector, but we need to get productivity back to where it used to be. And for some, we need to increase the working week from 37 to 40 hours. We're not changing base pay or pensions and we will reward increased productivity through additional bonuses. 83% of our employees have already accepted the new terms, including the majority of our engineers. Our changes are ultimately to protect and create jobs for the future. Five weeks ago, a cross-party group of MPs urged Centrica bosses to withdraw any threat of firing and then rehiring the British gas engineering workforce. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson was also asked for his support for workers in the House of Commons.
The only exceptions to the industrial action were to be dealing with emergencies and problems for households with vulnerable people as temperatures plummet and the nation enter a third national lockdown, according to the union. In June, Centrica said it was to cut 5,000 jobs as the company tries to set a new course amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Centrica said it would strip out three layers of management to slimline the business and cut down on bureaucracy. Around half of the 5,000 jobs lost were lost to the company's leadership, management and corporate staff. In February, Centrica delivered its worst financial results since 2015, reporting a pre-tax loss of £1.1 billion for 2019, massively down from a £575 million profit in 2018. Adjusted operating profits generated by British Gas fell by 71% to £137 million, the lowest in the supplier's history. The first wave of strike action within British Oblique Scottish Gas began on January the 7th. At the start of this strike action, Centrica told the Herald, whilst we've made great progress with our other unions, sadly the GMB leadership seem intent on causing disruption to customers during the coldest weekend of the year amid a global health crisis and in the middle of a national lockdown. We have strong contingency plans in place to ensure we will still be there for customers who really need us and we will prioritise vulnerable households and emergencies. Over 83% of our workforce have already accepted our new terms in which base pay and pensions are protected, including a significant majority of GMB members. This shows most of our people understand that our business needs to change because customer needs are changing. GMB's mandate for strike action is weak. They are fighting against modernisation and changes which will help to protect well-paid jobs in the long term and are doing so at a time when our country needs everyone to pull together. This article is by Martin Williams. The Herald, Wednesday the 20th of January 2021. News. Two Glasgow firms hail groundbreaking new MRI scanner. This article is by Brian Donnelly. Two Scottish firms have collaborated to produce a groundbreaking magnetic resonance imaging MRI scanner, which aims to provide new insights into brain disease research. Both based in Glasgow, Wide Blue, a product design consultancy, has linked up with MR Coiltech to create the high-density radiofrequency RF head coil technology, which it is claimed has successfully completed its first trial at the University of California, Berkeley. The project aims to provide new insights into brain disease research and will provide a large visual field for the neuroscientists to carry out functional MRI studies. Russell Overend, Chief Executive of Wide Blue, said when completed, the project will break through barriers in the field of brain disease research by introducing unprecedented levels of detail in brain imaging, which could lead to innovative new treatments. Dr Sajan Gunami, MR Coiltech Director, said we are delighted with the work Wide Blue did on the CAD design of the prototype and with the excellent initial results. It allowed us to meet the deadline for an important abstract submission and we look forward to making more progress with this groundbreaking new product. The head coil design, a first of its kind, uses 16-channel transmit and 96-channel receive RF architecture.
The firm said the new prototype high-density head coil combines with the next-gen 7T scanner capabilities to enable high-resolution full brain imaging to support studies of the cerebral cortex at an unprecedented microscale resolution, boosting the image resolution by a factor of 20 than current 7T MRI. Wide Blue became part of Pivot International in April 2018 after being acquired by the Kansas-based company for an undisclosed sum. It has a multidisciplinary workforce of 20 engineers. MR Coiltech was established in 2016 and is ideally based within the Imaging Centre of Excellence in the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital campus. This article is by Brian Donnelly. Recorded from the Herald. 19th of January 2021. Rangers and Celtic both announce new commercial partnership with Fortnite. Joshua Barry. Both Rangers and Celtic have announced a partnership with popular video game Fortnite. Epic Games, who developed Fortnite, have teamed up with a number of clubs around the world, including Manchester City and Wolves. From January 24th, players will be able to use those club kits in-game, meaning they can represent their club while online. Rangers said they were excited to allow fans to represent the club in-game. In a press release, Epic Games announced, We're kicking off 2021 in style by bringing the world of football, or soccer to some, in Fortnite. Football fans can get the new kick-off set and Pele's ear punch emoti on January 23rd, and possibly get them earlier by participating in the Pele Cup on January 20th. More details can be found here. Recorded from the Herald, 20th of January 2021. Rangers announce appointment of Light Blues investor to Ibrox board, Christopher Jack. Three Bears investor, George Lethman, has been appointed to the board of the Rangers Football Club Limited. Documents lodged with Company's House on Tuesday show that Lethman was named as a director on January 15th. TRFC Limited is wholly owned and operated by the RIFC PLC and Letham will now take a seat at the top table alongside Managing Director Stuart Robertson, Ross Wilson, the Sporting Director James Bisgrove, Andrew Dixon and James Blair. Letham was one of the three bears invested in Rangers alongside Douglas Park and George Taylor as Dave King, Paul Murray and John Gilligan won control of the club in March 2015. The 63-year-old currently has a 4.33% stake in the RIFC PLC and will now have a say in the running of the football board at Ibrox. You are listening to the Herald Scotland, recorded on Tuesday 19th January 2021. Phil Spector was a terrible person, but should we silence his music? An opinion article by Andrew Mackay. A good deal of derision greeted the BBC News website headline, fairly swiftly amended, that initially declared, Talented but flawed producer... Phil Spector dies aged 81. Plenty of people claimed that this was a bit like saying talented but flawed Dr Harold Shipman. One sees their point. Shooting someone else in the head, which is what Spector did to the actress Lana Clarkson in 2003, for which he was convicted and sentenced to 19 years to life in 2009, isn't a minor flaw. Given that Spector was still in jail for this brutal crime when he died, it's easy to think that murderer and former record producer would have been a better way round of framing the description. 
Yet when the drug-addled novelist William Burroughs died in 1997, nobody complained that the description, author of The Naked Lunch, received more attention than the fact that, in 1951, he had killed his wife by shooting her in the head. And one need have no sympathy for Spectre, by all accounts a thoroughly unpleasant piece of work, with a record of threatening and brutal behaviour, particularly towards women, to think that there would be a problem with any headline trying to sum him up. Talented, for example, is a ridiculous understatement of Spectre's importance as a record producer, according to most assessments of popular music. Even if you don't rate catchy chart songs as high art, there is very little dispute about the fact that Spectre was a titan of that form, or about the impact that his wall of sound had on pop. Obituaries, about which I know a bit, are not eulogies. Getting one is not a posthumous compliment. Good ones mention the failings of the subject, if they were significant. But they tend not to feature those famous only because of a crime. Idi Amin, murderer though he was, got covered because of his political role. By contrast, Dennis Nielsen's crimes were his only notable feature. What we now know about his behaviour towards his ex-wife, the singer Ronnie Spector, might have led, as in fact it has, to questions about whether his bullying in the studio was justified by the results he achieved. There has in fact also been, quite rightly, some reappraisal of whether his reputation unfairly overshadowed the talent of those with whom he worked. But none of that would have altered the fact that the story would have centred on Spectre as a giant of the music industry and his role in creating some of the greatest popular records of the second half of the 20th century. We don't expect artists and celebrities necessarily to be pleasant people. Indeed, there's overwhelming evidence that we put up with them being appalling people far too readily. Because of a new biography of her, there were articles over the weekend about what a ghastly person the crime novelist Patricia Highsmith was, there was a recent, rather shamefaced apology on behalf of a fellow writer and fellow anti-Semite, Raoul Dahl, from his estate. These revelations may make us think badly of them as people, but on the whole they don't affect our view of their work. In his essay, Benefit of Clergy, George Orwell, who disapproved of both Salvador Dali personally and his repellent and diseased work, grappled with whether such moral judgments invalidate the status of the art produced, and on the whole concluded that they don't. The prevailing attitude today is, by and large, the other way around. Cancel culture tends to take the view that there is something unclean about work produced by those who have been found guilty of anything they regard as a crime. In the case of Spectre, or Gary Glitter, or Ike Turner, or Oscar Pistorius, those are actual and serious crimes. Though he wasn't convicted, most people would put O.J. Simpson in the same bracket. In other cases, it is the crime of being politically unsound. A lot of people seem keen to ruin the careers of J.K. Rowling and Lawrence Fox. It's an inconsistent form of cancellation, though, even if you ignore the tiresome axe-grinding directed at celebrities who have made the mistake of being Tories or Blairites or boomers, or in some other way completely unacceptable. If one looks only at cases where there are real offences and real harm, 
we still seem to be applying our condemnation selectively. That selectivity seems not so much to do with the gravity of the offence, but in most cases the quality of the work produced by the culprit. You probably can't remember the last time anybody played a record by the sex offenders Gary Glitter or Jonathan King on the radio. No great loss, since we can all happily live without leader of the gang and everyone's gone to the moon. In the case of Jimmy Savile, we don't even need to erase his work, since it's impossible to imagine why anyone ever valued it or even work out quite what it was. But despite plenty of evidence of Michael Jackson's proclivities, you still quite often hear his records. One can only conclude that the chief difference is that his stuff is too good to get rid of. Divorcing the failing of an artist from the merits of his or her work was previously the normal practice. The painter Carvaggio and the composer Gesualdo were both murderers. The playwright Christopher Marlowe may only have committed manslaughter. It never seems to have occurred to anyone that this undermined the quality of their work. But there are signs this is changing, especially in connection with the Me Too movement. The actor Kevin Spacey is one of the few instances I can think of where someone genuinely great seems to have been painted out of existence, rather than temporarily dropped. Whether a similar fate lies in store for, say, Johnny Depp, who has been asked to stand down from at least one role, may provide some indication about the strength of this tendency. You are listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Tuesday 19th January 2021. Public health must come before political ambition. An opinion article by Claire Taylor. Is now the time to stir up emotions and divide our communities in the pursuit of independence? The SNP has ramped up its efforts for another independence referendum, announcing the creation of an independence task force ahead of members gathering this week to discuss the route forward for a second referendum. There is no denying the increasing appetite for an independent Scotland. Some 18 opinion polls in a row have indicated a majority for yes. The latest Savanta Comres poll, published January the 14th, found that 57% of Scots would vote yes if a second independence referendum was held tomorrow, compared to 43% who would vote no, not including undecideds. However, should our government not be directing all its efforts and energy into vaccine distribution and kick-starting the nation's economic recovery, not to mention preparing for the mental health pandemic which is already unfolding. Is it not churlish to speak of huge constitutional changes which will serve only to dominate discussions and divide communities, at this time when Scotland needs to be strong and unified in its support of one another? Amidst the difficulties of the past year, we have heard countless positive reports of individuals and whole communities who have gone above and beyond to help neighbours and complete strangers who are in isolation a rallying effort which has not been seen since the days of the war. At a time where poor mental health has become commonplace to so many, this togetherness has given everyone a sense of hope for the future in rebuilding our nation. But there is a limit to Scotland's emotional resilience. Is now the time to bring up such a divisive issue and push forward with a political dogma which could turn families, friends and communities against one another? If we reflect back on the summer of 2014, 
Scotland was riding on a high from hosting the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. There was a great sense of pride felt by all, a perfect backdrop to what was to come in the autumn. That year I began my media career as a trainee sports reporter at those games, but it also paved the way for a future cover in politics, and it all started with the independence referendum that September. I was part of the team organising Scotland's biggest ever youth debate, which saw 7,000 school pupils descend on Glasgow's SSE Hydro to put their questions to policymakers. In the lead-up to the debate, I spent weeks interviewing 16- and 17-year-old school pupils who had recently been given the vote and were excited to exercise their newfound democratic right for the first time. What should have been a fantastic experience, witnessing the next generation engaged in the political process, instead flagged up deep divisions within Scottish society at the time. One conversation that has stuck with me was an interview with a 16-year-old girl who was born in Scotland to English parents and told me she was immensely proud to be Scottish but had been bullied by classmates for her accent and told she didn't belong here. This was unfortunately a common theme throughout my interviews. In the coming weeks, we should all prepare ourselves for keyboard warriors and self-proclaimed experts from both sides of the fence, which will litter our social media feeds. And if anxiety levels are running high as a result of the pandemic, let me assure you they will be triggered further still. Although the full economic and employment impacts of COVID-19 are yet to emerge, if the looming recession is similar to that experienced after the 2008 financial crisis, The number of people of working age suffering poor mental health in the UK would rise by half a million, according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies. I was pleased to hear Dr Alastair Cook, the Principal Medical Officer for Mental Health, address the nation during the First Minister's Covid update last week, detailing the support on offer for those who are struggling during the current uncertainty. The Scottish Government is under no illusion that the pandemic has had, and will continue to have, a severe impact on the nation's mental health, and in response, launched their transition and recovery plan for mental health this past October, to outline how they will respond in the months and years ahead. Before the pandemic, public demand for mental health treatment and support was already outstripping supply. A recent Freedom of Information request made by the Scottish Liberal Democrats found that one in eight senior mental health roles in Scotland are vacant and across the country, 82 consultant psychiatrist roles have not been filled. The Scottish Government is aware of these statistics and have rightly made strong commitments to addressing mental health, including increasing investment to £35 million for 800 additional mental health workers by 2021-22. to But if they are serious about tackling this ticking time bomb, then IndyRef 2 must be placed on the back burner until Scotland regains its footing. Even amongst independent supporters, there is recognition that such a landmark vote shouldn't get in the way of other priorities which need addressing. That same Savanta Comrades poll, which showed a majority in favour of independence, also revealed that health and the economy were in the top three most important issues facing the country with independence coming in at six. Will the Scottish Government prioritise political ambition over public health, 
at a time where Scotland's emotional resilience is already under immense strain. I am by no means arguing against another independence referendum further down the line, but this should be a discussion for when this great little country is no longer on its knees and facing a looming mental health pandemic. You are listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday the 20th of January 2021. Fishing chaos. True stories, complex, but there is a way forward. An opinion article by Brian Wilson. For those who saw Brexit as a dire warning against only have to win once referendums, fish lorries parading down Whitehall offer early evidence of consequences. Creating borders and barriers to trade where they did not previously exist is never a good idea. It now seems doubly unfortunate that the Scottish Fishermen's Federation, the industry's most powerful voice, was such a keen supporter of Brexit. The five families who control half of Scotland's fishing quota will not be unduly troubled. In reality, the Scottish fishing industry is far from a single entity, as it tends to be presented, and the crisis faced by shellfish and other smaller exporters are of an entirely different order to any passing inconvenience to the wealthier sectors. Such clarifications are necessary in order to strengthen the case of those who really are being harmed here and now. These businesses need solutions to survive, and the focus should be on protecting them through the challenges they now face. It was utterly irresponsible to press ahead with full Brexit implementation purely to meet an artificial deadline. That also applies to other sectors of the UK economy, but for obvious reasons, exports of live shellfish were particularly vulnerable. Talking to affected businesses, I found the overwhelming interest is in sorting out practical problems. The logistics of merging consignments with proper paperwork. The compatibility of IT systems. The colour of ink. Even, I am assured, different spellings of Latin names for particular species. Everyone knew there would be more paperwork, though nothing like what has actually emerged. Some aspects of it could have been foreseen, but other elements only presented themselves through practical experience. They are capable of resolution, but a little time was, and still is, needed. Is it too late to press a pause button, even now? A smoked salmon producer who has encountered the new bureaucracy told me, both the UK and DU are going to have to radically streamline the process or else there will be huge economic costs. For all UK seafood exporting businesses, it is a hugely worrying time. Even without Brexit, the continental market is at a low ebb with restaurants, hotels and retailers shut due to Covid. That makes it even more important for available orders to get through and to use this period to sort things out before something approaching normality returns. That is where the urgent efforts of government and the promised £23 million compensation should be directed. To support companies facing real hardship, made an awful lot worse by a refusal to countenance even a short delay between conclusion of the Brexit deal and its full implementation. There is another dimension to this story, however, beyond the immediate gloom. The fact remains that Brexit will give the Scottish Government far more control over our waters. Once the current furore subsides, 
crucial decisions affecting Scotland's coastal communities will be taken much closer to home. This is the aspect of fishing policies that tends to be avoided. Thundering about the Scottish fishing industry papers over the conflicts of interest that exist within it and have historically been far more damaging to many Scottish fishing communities than Westminster, the CFP and Brexit put together. A taste of this was offered by a recent court of session judgment in which creel fishing interests on the West Coast challenged Scottish ministers over their refusal to consider a pilot scheme around Skye, which would have excluded trawling activity for six months of the year. Ministers were accused by the creel interests of cronyism, while Lady Paul, in her ruling, observed saltily, it would be stultifying to good government if any opposition to a proposed measure was a bar to its adoption. As chance would have it, this test case, which may have far-reaching implications, involved a sea area slap in the middle of the constituency represented by Ian Blackford and Kate Forbes. Did they support their local creel fishermen? Or the trawling interests? Or criticism of Scottish ministers? We will never know because they said nothing. How much easier to be vociferous against external foes than educate on conflicting interests within Scotland itself. That is a political luxury which Brexit, paradoxically, may make it more difficult to hide behind. Like everything to do with fishing, creels versus trawlers is complicated and answers lie in balances rather than absolutes. One certainty is that future fishing policy within Scottish waters should not simply build on past structures, which have driven decline in many coastal communities. To take an example, West Coast fishermen have no share of the huge pelagic, the herring and mackerel, quota in their own waters. Will that be perpetuated when such decisions are taken in Edinburgh rather than Brussels? Will the next few years be used to rebuild infrastructure and train a new generation of fishermen to bring back prosperity to far more of Scotland's coastal communities? We must support the fishing businesses that really are facing huge challenges at present, but also seize, rather than evade, the opportunity to build something fairer and more sustainable for the future. A Scottish Government motivated by these objectives and conscious of its new powers might establish a post-Brexit commission on the future organisation of the Scottish fishing industry. I fear it will do no such thing, because the powerful interests the cheerleaders for Brexit, would tell them to forget it. And that is where Scottish fishing's political muscle continues to lie. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 20th of January 2021. Books. Ordessa, a desolate memento mori and a warm consoling hug. By Stephen Phelan. Ordessa, Manuel Vilas. Canongate, £11.99. Review by Stephen Phelan. What a start to the year's reading. Manuel Vilas's Ordesa is a smack in the chops and a swim in the sea, a desolate memento mori and a warm consoling hug. If that sounds a little blurby, you should hear the hymns that Spanish critics sang to it on publication in 2018. Tears fountaining from their eyes. It's sold by the truckload too. As if it were a popular thriller rather than a plotless expression of private grief political disaffection and existential bafflement. 
which is to say that it obviously speaks to people and now in English too the swells and crashes of Via's wave-like syntax energetically rendered by master translator Andrea Rosenberg the author is a former secondary school teacher a career he summarises as 23 years of shouting everybody settle down he quit a couple of decades ago to devote himself to literature, becoming a prolific novelist and poet, turning steely irony against the Spanish state. Ardessa is something else though, apparently inspired by the death of his mother and the end of his marriage circa 2015. These losses made him free in the most frightening sense, an orphaned astronaut with a severed tether, and this book is a record of his spinning. It's subtitled A Novel, but reads much closer to the mode often classed as autofiction, Personal history sprayed onto the page in a manner more like bloodletting than storytelling. If there is structure here, it's imperceptible. Almost subatomic, each numbered chapter, a particle of thought orbiting the memory of Via's parents. The fact that I can never talk to them again seems to me the most outrageous phenomenon in the universe, he writes. A mystery as enormous as the origin of intelligent life. Little like W.G. Seabold, he includes reproduced photos as metaphysical prompts. A picture of his father in a bar, taken long before Via's birth, gives him the same pleasure that he imagines the angels feed upon. You can enjoy the world more when you're not in it. And a little like Karolovi Nausgaard, he invests totemic significance in materials object, from TVs, irons, water heaters and toiletry kits, to the mass-produced seat cars that signal Spain's shift towards industrial modernity during Franco's long dictatorship. There's a definite Marxist bent to his sense of the national continuum over the last half century or so, whereby neither fascism, nor monarchy, nor parliamentary democracy have ever done much for his parents or himself, or any other member of his country's lower middle class, all victims of Spain and the desire for prosperity. Readers from other backgrounds may or may not recognise their own struggles here, and their mileage will probably vary on Via's fondness for cosmic aphoristic statements like Nature is a vicious form of truth, or honesty too is an ontological fraud. He's not wrong though, surely. Which of us can say that we are not, as Via suggests, living in the tumult of the fleetingness of everything? What parent does not look at their children as he does and wish they could protect them till the final instant of eternity? And while the likes of Nausgaard tend to spiral inward, Vius opens out into boundless empathy. Standing behind a sweaty, demented pensioner in the supermarket, he does his best to remember that she was once a little girl beside a young mother. I place the old woman in my heart and I love her. There is so much love in this book for life and for language that it bursts the seams even in translation. If you're remotely responsive to this, it will make a holy mess of you. In writing without illusions, Vias must also acknowledge the limits of words on a page. Books aren't life, only a decoration for it, and a little more than that. Even so, this is one to clutch to your chest. By Stephen Phelan. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 20th of January 2021. Colin MacLeod and Life in Lockdown, Crofting and How the Music Scene Has Changed. Exclusive by Lois McKenzie Balancing music and crofting, Isle of Lewis singer-songwriter Colin MacLeod has spent lockdown at home in the island surfing, fishing and playing music for his fans on social media. With the success of his 2018 album Bloodlines over the last few years, Colin has found himself touring in the States, performing in James Corden's Late Late Show and touring alongside Sheryl Crow, Van Morrison and Robert Plant. However, like many of his, Colin spent 2020 at a slower pace, staying home in the Western Isles. 
Coleman's always happy to be home, as he told the Herald. I've enjoyed it, my lifestyle isn't that far off a lockdown anyway, he says as he talks about time spent in his croft and visiting favourite fishing spots. As COVID-19 began cancelling gigs and performances worldwide, Colm quickly took to Instagram and began creating performances for fans digitally. Lockdown songs, as he refers to it, quickly became popular and Colm was seeing hundreds of people tune in for his music. I think the thing that people really enjoyed the most is it was a bit informal. It was kind of a bit daft. It grew all the time and there's quite a lot of people that started following me as a direct result of it. It's been interesting seeing if you can be in remote places and still keep engaged with people when you can't get to them. Being from the Isle of Lewis, remoteness has always been a factor for Colin. While musicians based in Glasgow can perform at last minute performances, he notes time and expense of travel has always proven to be a barrier for spontaneity. Being in such a remote location means you're limited in with the things you can do. The lockdown forced me into thinking of how to keep people interested in what I do, with a big distance in the way. Colin's second album, Hold Fast, was due for release at the end of January, but due to further restrictions this year, it's been postponed for the time being. It's hard to release an album when you can't talk to people and do a few shows. It's just a case of sitting and waiting to see what happens over the next few months, and hopefully we'll be able to. Talking about the future of the music industry and gigs, Colin had no doubt live performances will one day return. Acknowledging the struggles and difficulties presented by COVID-19, he noted the strength of artists. Musicians are so resilient, they're so driven, they will do anything they can to be a musician and to get through things. Maybe this will be a big change to things online, but I don't think people's appetite for live music has diminished. I think once things are safe and we're able to, people are still going to want to go to gigs, and I'm certainly still going to want to play gigs. Colin's new album may be postponed, but he's already released three singles ready to stream. Old Soul featuring Cheryl Crow, The Long Road and Warning Signs by Lois McKenzie. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 18th of January 2021. Five things to do to beat the lockdown blues this week by Charlotte Cohen. Celtic Connections Festival. Taking a new online format, the Celtic Connections Festival returns for its 2021 instalment. The first event in the calendar takes the form of two concerts. The first coming in the shape of Bemis Presents C with music from Jamaican musician Brina. The Ando Glashow Collective, a group that showcases the cultural heritage of the Roma people living in Scotland, will also perform as part of the early evening show. Later that evening we'll see Sugo Nifty, fiddle playing royalty Rant and Scots singer Fiona Hunter take to the stage alongside singer-songwriter Paul McKenna and Sudanese singer-songwriter Amira Keir. 16th January, tickets from £7, online event www.celticconnections.com New Voices, Josie Duncan. Another exciting event, part of the Celtic Connections Festival, sees one of Scotland's most exciting new musical talents, Josie Duncan, take to the stage, joined by a band comprised of Scotland's most accomplished musicians. The performance will also be available to watch for one week after the live date to accommodate different time zones. 17th January from 1pm, tickets from £2, online event www.celticconnections.com. Not So Blue Monday Nature Talk For anyone interested in the natural world, this talk from the Lanark Trust is the perfect lockdown activity. This nature talk delivered via Zoom comes from Stuart Ritchie, educational gardener at Castlebank Horticultural Centre. He will explore the magic of light, natural pigments and how the human eye perceives the colour blue. 
18 January from 7pm, free, brackets, booking essential, close brackets, online event, lanarktrust.co.uk. Comedy 101, a Zoom workshop with Dean Gummer. Take up a new skill this lockdown with this interactive workshop from Edinburgh's funny man, drag king, Dean Gummer. Suitable for beginners or as a refresher, ticket holders will receive a list of materials to prepare for the workshop, along with live demonstrations and DIY activities during the workshop. 19 January from 7pm to 9pm. Tickets from £20. Online event www.outsavvy.com forward slash event forward slash 5577 forward slash comedy hyphen 101 hyphen a hyphen zoom hyphen workshop hyphen with hyphen dean hyphen gummer hyphen tickets heroines of the Canningate women is urban and social reformers in the Edwardian old town if history is more your cup of tea, this online lecture from Museums and Galleries Edinburgh is a great afternoon lockdown activity. Presented by Dr Elizabeth Darling, whose research focuses on gender reform, interwar English, architectural modernism, social housing and very often intersections among them all. This talk offers a different account for urban reform in Edwardian Edinburgh, exploring the many women who work together to change the living conditions of the communities in the city's old town. 20 January from 2 to 3pm, free online event, www.edinburghmuseums.org.uk forward slash what's hyphen on forward slash digital hyphen lecture hyphen heroines hyphen canningate hyphen women hyphen urban hyphen and hyphen social hyphen reformers hyphen Edwardian hyphen old hyphen town. By Charlotte Cohen. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.